So, we've had five weeks in the Old Testament. Last year we went through the first 13 chapters of Mark's Gospel. And we've taken a little bit of time off to revisit the Old Testament and to kind of trace God's sovereign plan. You know, this whole Jesus thing, sending the Savior, wasn't God's plan B when something that He made broke. This was the plan of God, I believe, from before the foundations of the world. And we've looked through Old Testament history. And what we've seen is that God has a plan. What we've seen is that God wants to come and inhabit and live amongst His people. What we've seen is that He is a God who is holy and that He requires sacrifice. And sacrifice involves the shedding of blood. And in one sense, it is gruesome. It certainly is. We do not want to downplay that that in order for us to have access to God, something has to lose its life. We saw Abraham being commanded to sacrifice his only son on Mount Moriah. Everyone say Moriah. Moriah. Moriah is very important. <laughs> uh, Moriah is very, very important. And what did God do for Abraham at just the right time? He provided a sacrifice. And he didn't have to sacrifice his own son. And then God instructed Moses to build a tabernacle so he could come and live amongst the people. It was important. God wanted to be close to his people even though his people were sinful and he was not. Then we learned about atonement. That in order for us to have relationship with God, something has to die because there's been a, a, a riff in our relationship with God. It's been broken because of sin. And then last week... Joe shared with us about King David and a sin that he committed and how God required a sacrifice for, that David had to make. And David went to a thresh. He was directed to a threshing floor. That's a threshing floor on the left, bottom left-hand side there where they would stamp out the grain and get it ready to eat. And it, that place that God directed him to just so happened to be the exact same mountain where God told Abraham to go sacrifice his son Isaac. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we see very clearly that Mount Moriah was Ornan's threshing floor, where David offered the sacrifice that made the angel of the Lord go away as the angel was, was bringing judgment upon the people because of David's sin. And it is this very property, this very threshing floor that David now owns, that he plans to build the temple on. But what we're going to see today is that God was not going to have David build a temple. And a temple was going to be the house of God. But God was not going to have David build a temple. And he told David that in the later years of his life. But he told David, he says, instead, I'm going to have your son, who will be king after you, I'm going to have your son build the temple. So in the final years of David's life, David started arranging the materials that were necessary and uh, he started organizing things so his son would be able to jump into the work. So today our passage is that, that we, we are going to look at in depth and discuss is a prayer, very long prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. It's incredible what is in here. But this prayer is prayed after the temple is built, 
When all of Israel is gathered, most likely hundreds of thousands of people are gathered in Jerusalem around this temple at the time. And God's people come, and King Solomon leads them in worship and in sacrifice. I got a three-minute video that summarizes what's going on as we get into our passage. And this will summarize it far better than anything I would ever be able to do. So watch this video, and then we'll uh, read the passage together. Solomon was a very wise king, and he did many great things. But the greatest work of Solomon's reign was the building of the house of God, which is called the temple. Solomon planned very carefully. That's because building the temple was very important work. It mattered a lot to Solomon. That's because his father, King David, had wanted to build the temple and had prepared for it by gathering lots of gold, silver, stone, and cedar. Solomon knew how much the temple mattered to his dad. He knew how much it mattered to God. So building the temple mattered to Solomon very much. He took great care to make sure everything was just right. The temple stood on Mount Moriah, which is the exact place where Abraham took his son Isaac to be sacrificed. The place where Solomon's father David had built an altar and a prayer to him. This was a very important place designed for a very important task. Building God's house. Cedar for the roof was brought from faraway lands, and all the stones for the building of the temple were chiseled in shape and fitted together before they were brought to Mount Moriah. And all the beams for the roof and the pillars of cedar were carved and made to join each other. This was so that as the walls arose, no sounds of hammers or chisels were heard. God's house was built by it. Because building God's temple so that people could worship was so important to Solomon, he used the finest materials to build it. The walls were covered with pure gold. He decorated it with precious gems. Nothing was too good for God's house. It took King Solomon and his men seven years to build the temple, but at last it was finished. When it was done, Solomon brought all the things his dad, King David, had gathered for the temple the gold, silver, and other important items. Then he had the Ark of the Covenant brought to the temple where it would sit in a place of honor in the house of God. Finally, Solomon held a great service and let the people know the temple was ready. Solomon's greatest work was complete. He cared about the house of God. He cared about worship. So God used Solomon to build his temple where people could worship the one true God. So that is a quick summary of what is going on Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 8. I want to read uh, <clears throat> I want to read verse 10 and 11 real quick too. So they bring the ark of the covenant in verse 10 and verse 11. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. <clears throat> we saw this when the tabernacle was completed with Moses. Now let's go down to verse 22, and we'll read a pretty long passage through verse 53. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, 
and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. That your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. The place of which you have said, my name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty, by bringing his conduct on his own head, and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy, because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, Whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you, all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, 
by whatever way you shall send them. And they prayed to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying... We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carry them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage. As you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. I think this is the longest passage we've ever tried to cover on a Sunday. So hear me say that. We are not going to cover every detail in here today. And you will not get to discuss every detail in here today. Here's what I want to do. As we do every week, we discuss our passage. The questions will be behind me. The questions are in your worship guide. We have four basic questions. What does it say? If it says the sun came up, then the answer is the sun came up. It must be morning. What does it mean? That has to do with interpretation. How do I obey? That's very simple also. How should our lives change because of it? And the fourth one is, who can I share this story with? And the way to think about that is, is there any good news in here that someone I know needs to hear? So read the passage or... or half the passage a couple times and when the time is right your table leader will begin the discussion all right everybody i think we could go much much longer in this there is a lot in this passage we could spend three weeks or four weeks on it easily i think i'm not going to try to go verse by verse through this but i am going to start (laughs) <laughs> I like Connie because she, she's not afraid to show how he, she feels. I know other people feel that way. They just weren't willing to say it. <laughs> so let, let, we'll go through the first few verses and then we'll skip through the last part of it. But verse 22. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. Okay. There were probably hundreds of thousands of people there. From as far south as, as the, the northeast corner of Egypt and as far north as modern day Syria, they were there. And he had built a platform like right in front of the temple and he had knelt down like this. We see this in other verses. And this verse tells us he put his hand up and he was leading this assembly. And he says this. Oh, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. I want to tell you today, child of God, that there is no God like our God. 
He and He alone is true. He and He alone exists. He and He alone is faithful. And He and He alone is unmatched in goodness and faithfulness and power and wisdom and strength. There is nobody like Him. There is no one that you can call upon. We know that there are idols in our world today. We know that there are false religions today. You could turn to them and go to them, but they do not have the might and the strength and the power of the God of Israel, of the God of Jesus Christ, of of the Christian God. There is no God like Him. And when we know this, it changes how we pray. So, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like You in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to Your servants who walk before You with all their heart. What does He do? He keeps covenant. God had made promises to the people and He keeps His promises and He shows steadfast love, the Bible says. Who does He show steadfast love to? To the servants who walk before God with all their heart. His loving kindness, His his everlasting love is primarily, it's for everyone, but it's primarily received by those who walk according to the commands and according to the covenant of God. There's like three or four chapters around this event that we're not even looking at today that we haven't even got into, but in some of these verses it tells us that there are hundreds of, of people that have assembled as a choir and they are singing, O Lord, your steadfast love endures forever. And they are singing this over and over and over again. And they've got instruments and it is festive and it is joyful occasion. So there's no God like you. You keep covenant and steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Verse 24, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Solomon is praying, being fully aware of the word of God from the past. Solomon is praying, having knowledge of what God has promised. He knows God's plan and he is doing things according to the plan of God. And he's talking about, you've just been doing it, God, and now we're here today. And there's a shift. We get to verse 25. There's a shift in the prayer. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David my father. What Solomon is saying to God so far is there's nobody like you. You keep covenant and steadfast love to your people who follow you. God, I know everything that you've done in the past and you've been faithful. But God, I know you haven't done everything yet that you're going to promise. And just like you've been faithful in the past, I'm praying with confidence now that you will do the things that are yet to come. I am confident in the plan of God. And because I have confidence that God is true, I I, I can say, do it, God. Your plan is good. Everything you want to do, 
do it, and I'm going to take a front row seat. I'm going to obey you, do whatever you say. I'm going to be a part of this covenant, and I know that you have steadfast love that does not waver. You don't take a vacation when it is comes to your love for me, but you are there, and you are faithful, and you are unchanging. Now, God, do all that you have planned to do. It's dry, like he has confidence when he prays, and it's beautiful. We get to verse 27, and he asks this rhetorical question. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? What's the answer? He will. He will. We saw that when we looked at the tabernacle. The picture, top of the middle. At our table, we, we, uh, uh, someone asked, is this the first temple that there ever was? And in one sense... Yeah, it's the first temple like this, but before that they had the tabernacle. It was a tent that they could set up and tear down in a few hours as they were traveling on the way to the promised land. But God's presence, when they first built that tabernacle, the presence of God came in as a thick, dark cloud. And His presence was so powerful, people couldn't even go inside to minister. And here in this temple, in verse 10 and 11, it was like that. God was dwelling there in thick darkness. So much so that people couldn't go inside the temple. That's why Solomon was at the front of the temple addressing all the people. No one could go in there because God was in there. So he asked the question, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. See, in one sense it seems crazy that God lives in a house. And Solomon knew that. But... Solomon knew that at that time God wanted a place where he would live. But Solomon knew that his God is so great he can't be contained to an address or to a zip code. Okay, He can't be contained just to Jerusalem or just to this one building up on top of the hill in this large giant city called Jerusalem, at least large according to standards of their day. He says, behold, even the heavens, the highest heavens, they can't contain you. My God, this house is for you to live in, but you are so big and you are so great, you can't be in this. So the majesty and the transcendence and the incomprehensibility of God are before us, as, as Solomon prays. Verse 28, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant. Okay? This whole prayer... Solomon is thinking about the prayers to come in future generations. And he's saying, God, you're so faithful. I want you to think about my prayer today, and I want you to think about every other prayer that anyone ever asks in the generations to come. And he says, have regard to the prayer of your servant. He's talking about himself and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day. God doesn't take a nap. He doesn't need an alarm clock. He doesn't go on vacation. He will hear us anytime we pray. So that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. You see in verse 30, he's saying, Listen to my prayer and listen to the prayers of your people. See, in Isaiah, and we saw this back when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple in Mark chapter 11. In Isaiah, Jesus, or, or in Isaiah, he prophesied that Jesus quoted him in Mark 11. Isaiah says that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And that is the plan of God here. 
uh, verse 30, listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So, so look at the last part of verse 30. It's interesting. Listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. He's just saying God's going to dwell in this house, but he also knows that God is in heaven. And he's saying, God, when you hear us down here as we pray towards the house that you live in, while you're in heaven, I want you to hear us. We're going to be looking where you're at on the earth, but when you're in heaven, hear us. And when you hear, what's the last part of verse 30? What does Solomon want him to do? Talk to me, somebody. End of verse 30. Forgive, I heard. Forgive. And there's so much about that in this prayer. End of verse 30. Listen in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Look at verse 34. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel. Hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel. Look in verse 36. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Go down to verse 39. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know. So seeing a pattern here three times so far? Look at verse uh, 43. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. I like that. You don't have to be a middle class white American to be welcome into the kingdom of God. You don't have to be Jewish, a part of Abraham's family, to be welcome into the kingdom of God. All people, all people are welcome and can hear, can, can, can pray to God. So that, that was what, verse 43? Go to verse 45. Then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Again in verse 49. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. I, I believe this is one, two, this is six times. He says, here in heaven, you're dwelling on the earth, but when, it, when we pray to you, when me today and all generations to come pray to you, then here in heaven while you dwell on earth, but here in heaven and forgive us. And, and in this long passage that we have here that I'm not covering all the details of, what's happening is that Solomon is talking about situations that he knows are going to come up. If there's a dispute between two people and, and one of them does something wrong and they come and pray to you, then forgive them. And he just has one scenario after another. If invaders come in from a ruling empire nearby and are trying to destroy you, then do this. Do this, do that, do this. But the common bond in all these situations is, God, while you're in heaven, hear us and forgive us. Solomon knows that forgiveness is going to be necessary. There's even one verse in here where the people are saying, where, where he even says, you know we're going to sin because nobody can't. Uh, verse 46, if they sin against you, for there's no one who do, does not sin. There's no one who does not sin. So, so Solomon is just saying, God, you dwell here on the earth. Well, I want you to forgive us. Look at verse 32. Verse 31. Well, verse 32. Then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head. And vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. 
there's justice there. And I love that because we all find ourselves in situations at, at times in our life where we've been charged with something that we didn't do. And the very righteousness of God, He wants the guilty to be punished and the innocent to go free. It doesn't always work that way here and now in 2019. It doesn't always work that way. But when God's kingdom is come and set up in the new heavens and the new earth, the guilty will be guilty, the innocent will be innocent, and there's not going to be any injustice or stirring of the pot. It's all going to be right. It's all going to be perfect. God is waiting to bring that. He's chosen to not do it yet. And sin is still here on the earth just today in 2019, just like it was in Solomon's day. So sometimes innocent people are punished and guilty people get to go free. And while it's not right, we must pray that God's kingdom would come. We must pray that justice will be done. And we must look to God in the meantime while we wait, awaiting His vindication. It's loaded. There's so much there. And we see this theme throughout the prayer. But for the sake of time, I want to move on. Look, let's read verses 62 through 64. We haven't looked at these today. The prayer is over. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. We've seen sacrifice, haven't we? Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Sacrifices made in the tabernacle on a regular basis. The two goats on the Day of Atonement, one of them would be sacrificed and killed. The other one would have sin laid upon his head in a prayer of confession and he would take the, the sin outside of the camp. And then last week, Ornan's threshing floor, God was angry because of David's sin and David offered sacrifice and the judgment stopped. Sacrifice is not a new idea here. Well, Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord. Uh, wait, no, I'm wrong verse. Verse 62. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. All right, and this is a big sacrifice. Look at verse 63. <laughs> Solomon offered his peace offerings to the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. Because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offerings and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. Sacrifice. God's dwelling amongst them. And for, this isn't necessary for us today because of Jesus, but for them, 950 years before Jesus, it was necessary. God's dwelling amongst them, and they are offering continual sacrifice. See, all this stuff is important if we're going to understand the gospel. All this stuff that we've been looking at these five weeks throughout the Old Testament and what we've seen in Mark's gospel and what we're going to be seeing as we approach his death on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter coming up in just a couple months, what we're going to see is beauty. What we're going to see is goodness. 
What we're going to see is a God who dwells with us. What we're going to see is a God who hears our prayer. What we're going to see is a God who no longer requires you to bring a sacrifice to him so you can have a relationship with him. He actually became the sacrifice himself in Jesus. See, the reason that we don't have to offer lambs and rams and goats and all these burnt offerings and all these things, we don't have to go to, a, to Jerusalem. The reason we don't have to do that, the reason we don't need temporary sacrifices is because Jesus became the once and for all sacrifice. But before Jesus, his people had to do these things. And what it, these things did was it prepared them for the Messiah. It prepared them for the anointed one. It prepared them for the Lord who would give his life as a ransom for many. Those sacrifices that they offered were to cover their sin. And they were also just extra sacrifices to show their love for God. Today we don't bring a sacrifice to cover our sin. There's nothing we can bring. We do offer sacrifice to God, like Romans 12, 2, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's a lot in the New Testament about spiritual sacrifices that we can make. We do do that today. But those things don't make us right with God. Those things do not give us a relationship with God. We make those sacrifices because we already have a relationship with God. Not to get one, but because we already have one. We make sacrifices today Because God wants us to be like Jesus. And while Jesus' sacrifice was so that we could have a relationship with him, our sacrifice is to show love and gratitude and honor to the God who gave himself for us. I've got good news for you today. And that is, there's nothing you can do to get yourself in a good relationship with God. There's nothing you can bring. There's no sacrifice you can bring. I thought you said that was good news. Well, I'm not done yet. That sounds like bad news. You can't do it. The good news is is that Jesus did it. And the good news is He was obedient to the Father, so He went to the cross. And as He was dying on the cross, His blood pouring out on the ground and His body there broken, we should have been there, but we weren't because He did it for us. That's the good news. That's the sacrifice. Has Jesus' blood covered your sin? Ask yourself that question. Has He covered your sin? If He hasn't, the way to receive that is to put your faith in Him. Repent, turn to God, and place your faith, place your trust in Jesus, and He saves. He saves. He forgives completely, wholly, and fully. In every way. Church, that's good news. One more piece of good news for you. God is sovereign. Okay? He's not just operating on a whim. He's not waiting to see what so-and-so is going to do. Are they going to put this guy into pitch this week? Or are they going to put this guy into pitch that week? I mean, that's what baseball coaches do. You know, they, they, they wait to see what the other team might do. And then they'll make a plan according to it. God's not like that. His plan has been right from the get-go. And we see God choose a place. 2,000 years before Jesus went on this place, he chose Mount Moriah and he started sacrifice there. 2,000 years before Jesus offered the once and for all perfect sacrifice. Our God is sovereign. He is perfect. He is trustworthy. He is wonderful and beautiful in every way. And he just happens to have awesome and crazy love for each and every one of us in here.
Let's praise Him. Let's give our lives to Him. Let's not hold anything back from Him. Let's say, yes, Lord, whatever you want. Right now, you are good. You died for me. You've got it all under control, even if it doesn't look like it. I trust you right now for everything. And I say, yes, Lord. That's question number three. What do we do in response? We just say, yes, Lord. Every week when you ask that, just know the right answer is yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. (laughs) So that's what we got to do. So let's do it, church. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and for your truth and for this incredible day almost 3,000 years ago. It is a joy to see your sovereign plan, your good hand in our lives. God, would you grab hold of our hearts? May we just fall in love with you, merciful Savior, coming King, awesome God, you rule and you reign on high. We pray these things in Jesus' name.